go ahead and take out your Bibles and let's look together at the book of Exodus. Book of Exodus, chapter 3. Exodus, chapter 3. This morning we're going to be looking at the call of Moses in verses 7 through 12. We spent several weeks looking at verses 1 through 6. Today we come to verses 7 through 12. Now let me remind you of what has happened, because it's pretty exciting. Uh, We have a Hebrew man. Uh, The Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. But this Hebrew man, Moses, is not a slave. Uh, He was raised by a daughter of Pharaoh in Pharaoh's court. Uh, At age 40... He saw what was happening to his people, and in his recklessness, he murdered an Egyptian taskmaster. And with a price now on his head, he left Egypt and he came to Midian, where he married the daughter of a Midianite priest. Together they had two sons, and now 40 more years have passed. When we come to Exodus 3, we have 80-year-old Moses shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law Jethro in a part of Midian called Horeb, though you know it better as Sinai. All of a sudden, Moses spots a bush that is burning. It's burning, but it isn't burning up. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And the voice of God speaks to him from out of this bush. Uh, The voice tells Moses that he is on holy ground. For it is God who is here. It is God who is speaking to him. The God of his father. The God of Abraham. Of Isaac. Of Jacob. But why is God speaking to Moses? What does God have to say? And that's where we pick up in verse 7. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So what do we have here? We have God's call to Moses to go before Pharaoh and to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. Now this morning, I want to draw your attention to three truths in this passage concerning the call of Moses. And the first is this. 
God condescends to care for us. God condescends to care for us. Uh, Did you notice how God is described in this passage? How does God himself describe what he is doing here? He says, I have come down to deliver them. God has come down to save his people. Some people really trip up over this language. They say, why would God need to come down? Isn't isn't God everywhere? Is this God talking like the mythological gods who have to leave their celestial palaces in order to come down and check out what's happening on earth? But don't trip up on this language. Yes, God is everywhere. Yes, God sees all things. But when God speaks of coming down, His point is this. He is condescending Himself to care about the concerns of these people. When I use this word, condescension, I don't mean it in a rude or insulting way. There's no reluctance on God's part here. There is no sense that God is angry because the Israelites need His help and they've disturbed His peace with their cries. No, no, no. This isn't a negative condescension. Rather, this is God reminding us of who He is in contrast to who we are. God is transcendent. God is far above us. We are like specks of dust before God, and yet, nevertheless, He lowers Himself to our level to act in our world and to care for our needs. Can you imagine getting involved in a battle between two colonies of ants? The two colonies of ants are fighting over a piece of bread that was thrown into the grass. Now, for you to even notice this little battle would be something remarkable. But then for you to somehow take yourself and to lower yourself into really understanding what is happening in this battle between these ants and to intervene and to enter into the situation with genuine concern, that that would be astounding. But here is God, Almighty God, transcendent God, looking down upon this situation with the Egyptians and the Israelites. And he comes down to get involved. He comes down to intervene. The transcendent God before whom the nations are as a drop in the bucket, nevertheless, cared for his people Israel. He set his special love upon them so that their needs and their concerns are now important to him. And this is exactly how it is with us. God has condescended to care for us. God has taken it upon Himself to notice our needs, to notice our plight, to notice our concerns. Did you notice how God reiterates again and again and again how much He cares for the people of Israel? In this one paragraph, he makes five statements emphasizing his concern for them. So put your finger on each one as I point them out. You ready? Verse 7, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. 
right? Yes, Moses, this oppression has gone on for decades, indeed for centuries. Some of the Israelites maybe think that God no longer cares, but that's not so. God has surely seen. Then also in verse 7, He has heard their cry. Heard their cry. Their prayers are not simply bouncing off of the ceiling and coming back down to them. God has heard the prayers of His people. And then further in verse 7, God knows their sufferings. He knows their sufferings. And remember, this word know, it's more than just intellectual knowledge. It doesn't mean that God simply has cognitive awareness of the sufferings of His people. It means that He's in it. He's grieving with them. He's angry at the injustice of it all. God's Spirit is not detached from His people being beaten with whips and not given enough food and being mistreated by the Egyptians. No, God knows their sufferings. Verse 9, verse 9, The cry of the people has come to me. The prayers of the people of Israel are like arrows being shot up into the sky and they have hit their target. They've come to Him. He has heard them. And then finally in verse 9, God says, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Meaning, I've seen everything that has happened. God has seen the whips bruising and scarring the backs of the Hebrews. God has seen the heavy labor of the Egyptian men who received no pay for their brick making and construction in the desert. Sorry, for the Israelite men who received no pay for their brick making and construction in the desert, but only enough provision to get them back working another day. God has seen that policy that, for a little while at least, had Israelite boys being thrown into the Nile River. All of the ways that the Israelites are being mistreated. All of the ways, both as a nation and as individuals, that the Egyptians are oppressing them. God has seen them all. He knows them all. And He's heard the cries of the people. Church, we need to remember that every act of man is performed before the watching eyes of God. There has never been an act of cruelty or injustice that God did not see and that He will not repay. To those of you who have come into this room this morning with hurts and with sufferings and with anguish, do not doubt it. Your God sees and He knows and He hears your cries. Dear Christians, you are God's children. God will deliver you out of every sorrow and out of every trouble in His own time. As a Christian, you are never alone. You are never without hope. You are never outside of God's care, not even for one millisecond. God is with you in your suffering. And He will sustain your soul through every trial till the day you are forever with the Lord. Is it not astounding that the God of all things, the God who created this vast universe, 
would take it upon himself to care so much for you. But he does. You, dear child of God, are dear to the heart of your Father. Maybe there's someone in this room and you're, you're lost and you're in your sins and you're headed to hell. Maybe you've been living a life of sin, living your own life, your own way, with little thought of God's commands. And you are now guilty before God. And your sins stack up against you and you're going to be judged accordingly. But dear lost person, God has even condescended Himself to care for you. You are not a nameless face to Him. You are not just one of seven billion people lost in the crowd. No, God cares for even you. He cares so much that He brought you here this morning to hear this message and to hear this call. Yes, your sins stand ready to condemn you, but God commands me to tell you that there is a way of salvation. God condescended in the person of Jesus Christ to die for sinners on the cross. Jesus bore on Himself the wrath of God for sins that He never committed. He bore the punishment that sinners deserve. He did so as a substitute for all who would ever become His. Jesus died for all who would ever turn from their sins and trust Him. There is no other door to heaven. And there is no other escape from hell. There is no other way to have forgiveness. There is no other way to have peace with God. God cares for you and He has provided salvation through Jesus Christ. And the question is this, will you have it? Or will you reject God and continue to live a life of rebellion? God would be just to show no concern for lost sinners in their miserable state. God would be just to see you in your bondage to sin and to pay you no mind. But God cares for you so much that He has chosen to look upon you and to show mercy. And He calls you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ that you may be set free from your bondage and that you may know what it is to know Christ and to be made holy. To have heaven as your home. The second truth I want us to see this morning is that God often works through human instruments. God often works through human instruments. Let's be very clear about this. God did not need Moses to set the Israelites free. God did not need Moses to accomplish Uh, the plan of bringing His people out of Egypt. There were so many other ways God could have done this. God could have caused all of the Egyptians to die in one day so that Israel would just be standing there in the midst of Egyptians dead everywhere and the land would be theirs, right there. Or God could have miraculously transported the people of Israel all the way into Canaan in a moment, the way Scotty beams people in Star Trek from one place to another. Could have just made it happen. Or God could have ordained a great earthquake 
that would have put a great rift between the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, and the land of Egypt, where the Egyptians were, and he could have just cut them off so that Israel would be free and easy to get away into Canaan. Or easiest of all, God could have simply compelled the heart of Pharaoh to want to let the people go. That's all it would have taken. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1 All God had to do was move the heart of Pharaoh to want to let the people go. Boom! God did not need Moses. But God chose to accomplish His purpose through Moses. And this seems to be God's normal way. He works typically through human instruments. How is God saving people today? How is God delivering people out of their sin and into salvation? How is God rescuing people from hell and putting them on the road to heaven? He's doing it through people. Jesus chose to pour His years of ministry into people, especially into the twelve disciples. These disciples poured their lives and their teaching into others. Through the first disciples, many thousands came to know God. Through those thousands, hundreds of thousands came to know God. From those, millions came to know Christ. Today, several billion profess Jesus as Lord. It's the Holy Spirit who saves people through the message of the gospel, but it's human beings that God uses to bring that message to people. We are instruments in the hands of God, and we get the great privilege of being a part of what He is doing in this world. Jesus is exercising glorious dominion from His throne. He's building His kingdom And he's doing so through people. Uh, Notice, by the way, that God prepares his instruments. God did not reveal this call to Moses when Moses was 20 or 30 or even 40 years old. God took decades to prepare Moses for this moment and for this call. Moses was prepared by being given a great education As an Egyptian prince, Moses likely received the best education in the whole world at that time. Moses was also prepared by God by being humbled. He was made an outcast. God certainly matured Moses by making him a husband and a father and an employee of his father-in-law. We could talk for hours about how 40 years as a shepherd was preparing Moses to lead the people of God? Mount Hermon, you may wonder sometimes, what in the world is God doing in my life? You you may say, "Why, why is this happening to me? Why am I being afflicted with, with this trial? Why did God bring this influence into my life? Why has God brought that relationship into my life? It may be very well, that God is preparing you for a calling He has for you in the future. 
Remember, Moses is 80 years old. So 70 year olds, don't think it's past time for God to give you a calling. He may be preparing you at 70 for something he has in store for you at 80 years old. The biggest ministry of your life might still be in your future. We ought to resolve right now that we will be open to the call of God and what He would do in us till the very day we die. Don't ever retire from being useful to God. Let us make the most of the godly influences in our lives. And let us make the most of the opportunities that God brings us right now. Let us be quick to learn the lessons that God is teaching us in our trials. You've heard people say, God doesn't call the equipped. He equips the called. And that's true, except sometimes He's already been equipping you for a long time before you're ever called. God prepares His people for the ways He intends to work through them. What has He been preparing you for? What has happened in your life? What knowledge do you have? What experiences have you had in the providence of God that now prepare you for some particular way that you can be useful to the kingdom of Christ? What are your gifts? Where do you have a unique ministry? Notice also that God often uses surprising instruments. Sometimes God calls the last people we would expect to fulfill His purposes. Uh, Certainly as Christians, we remember that most believers do not come from the wealthiest of backgrounds. The rich, the powerful, the intellectual elite, these people are seldom effectually called by God to salvation. It is typically the elite who look upon Christians as being foolish, common, lower. It is the lower people that God most often saves. Jesus chose His twelve disciples and He chose common men. He could have gone to the Sanhedrin. He could have gone to the courts of the Roman leaders or He could have gone to the universities of Greece in His day, but He didn't. He chose fishermen. He chose tax collectors. He chose common people and through them the entire world was turned upside down. You're here this morning because of what those tax collectors and fishermen did. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they've all been influential in this world, but they have not been nearly as influential as two fishermen named Peter and John. Or consider the Apostle Paul. Paul is a man who was well-educated. Paul was a man who came from a life of privilege and a life of opportunity. But this man had a burning hatred in his heart towards Christianity. He was completely devoted to Phariseeism and to self-righteousness. He looked on with approval as Stephen was stoned to death. He was the greatest human enemy of the church of Christ. He was ravaging the church in Jerusalem. He was on his way to Damascus to put more believers into prison. Is this the person you would expect God to call to be the missionary to the Gentiles? Certainly if you'd asked Peter or James or John, they would have put Paul near the top of their list of the greatest threats to the church. 
not potential leaders of the church. But God loves to surprise us. He loves to use people that we wouldn't expect. Among the Puritans, there were many very well-educated men who studied at places like Oxford University and who preached before royalty and they were the academics of their day. But of all of the great Puritan minds, which Puritan wrote the one book besides the Bible that affected more people with the gospel than any other book in the history of the world? It was not a well-educated man. It was not an Oxford man. It was the man known as the common tinkerer, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He was a foul-mouthed, perverse young man, the worst of his peers before he was converted. Nobody would have said, there's the man that God's going to use to bring thousands upon thousands to Christ. Who would God raise up to protect His people? when the gospel was being threatened by a terrible false teaching called Pelagianism. Who would God raise up? It was Augustine, a man who had spent more than a decade living with his girlfriend, praying to God, Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Here was a man with an addiction to sex, having spent years in a really weird cult called Manichaeism, He's teaching rhetoric in Milan and God uses a child playing a kid's game and an open Bible to change him. And he became the greatest leader of the first thousand years of Christianity after the apostles. Mount Hermon, Moses has been out of Egypt for four decades. He is now an elderly, he is a common shepherd. He's not a warrior He's not a great spokesman, as we will see. If you, and I, if you and I had been choosing who's going to be the deliverer of God's people, we would not have pointed to Moses. But this is the man that God called. And I can't help but wonder if there might not be someone in this room that God would call and surprise us all to be a minister or a missionary. Someone who gives their lives to the service of God. Might there not be someone in this room? You've never even considered going to seminary or going to the Middle East. But maybe even right now, God could give you a burning bush experience as He puts the call on your heart, compelling you to go. How I pray that this will happen. How I pray that we will see people raised up from this church who hear the call of God and answer the call and they go. Young person, old person, is it you? There is application here for all of us. We should hear this sermon as a call for us to seek God's direction in our lives. We should hear this sermon as a call to regularly pray to God that we would be most useful to Him and that He would guide us and direct us into those places where we can be most useful to His kingdom and His glory. None of us knows what God might call us to do tomorrow, but we know the obligations we have today. And so we ought to serve God with all of our hearts and all of our minds and all that we are with the opportunities we have right now. 
We want to be faithful in the small things that we can be trusted with greater things. Let us care for the sheep in Midian well that we can be trusted with caring for the people of God. Mount Hermon, let us not have a small vision. Let us dream big. Let us pray big prayers. The words of William Carey echo in our ears. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. He uses human instruments like you and me. Finally, number three. Third truth from this passage. We've seen that God condescends to care for us. We've seen that He uses human instruments to accomplish His purpose. Here is the third truth. God is with His people to protect them and to empower them. God is with His people to protect them and to empower them. How does Moses respond to the call of God to stand before Pharaoh and to bring Israel out of Egypt? Does he say like Isaiah, Here am I, Lord, send me. Is that what Moses says? Not at all. Moses responds with these words, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now what are we to do with that response? Well, we could try to give Moses the benefit of the doubt and we might say, well, these are words of humility. We might say Moses is just being humble. He, he really is saying, who am I, oh God, to be useful to you? Maybe, maybe that's what he's saying. He's feeling his unworthiness before Almighty God. The problem is, we're going to see as this conversation plays out, that this is only the first of five times that Moses is going to try and get out of this calling. When he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? What Moses is saying is, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I don't feel equipped to do this. I'm scared to do this. And think about what what God is calling Moses to do. He is calling this lowly shepherd to go stand before the most powerful man in the ancient world. I mean, how could Moses expect anything less than his own head being cut off here? So it seems that Moses is speaking out of his insecurity. He's speaking out of his unbelief. God, this is a suicide mission. Who am I to go speak to Pharaoh? It's Pharaoh, God. But God is very patient and tender towards Moses. And he replies this way. I will be with you. Moses, this is not about your strength. Moses, this is not about your capabilities. I will be with you. Moses, here is the answer to your questions. Here is the answer to your concerns. Here is the answer to quiet every fear and to cast away all doubt. Moses, I am going to be with you. And if I am with you, what are you worried about? God will be with Moses to protect him and God will be with Moses to empower him. Moses is not to do this great feat in his own power, but in the power that God will supply. Moses is to lean on God. He's to depend on God. He's to look to God for strength. 
And as Moses trusts God for help, God's going to take care of him, and he's going to cause all to come to pass, just as he ordained. Friends, I have no idea what tasks lie in front of you this week. I do not know what difficult obligations may be upon you. You may have issues in your life right now that are causing you to tremble, to worry, to live in fear or doubt. But if that's you, you need to hear this word from God. Do not be dismayed. Your God is with you. Jesus told us that He is always with us, even to the end of the age. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord, not even death. Frankly, if you had to face life's troubles in your own strength, you'd have good reason to be afraid. Your troubles are stronger than you, but you're a Christian. You're looking to Christ. You're depending on Christ. You're finding your strength in Christ. Take your concerns to Christ. Cast them all upon Him. And then counting on Him to care for you, face your days with confidence. We are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. God gives Moses a sign. He tells Moses, there's going to come a day, old doubting, trembling man, there's going to come a day when you're going to be back at this mountain and you're not going to be alone. There's going to be two million Israelites with you the next time you come back to this mountain. Moses, this is holy ground. And yes, it's holy because I'm here. It's also holy because next time you come, I'm going to be here with with a volcano-like mountain, trembling, lightning, thunderstorm, and you will know I have brought you here and I have kept my word. Moses is not to fear Pharaoh. Moses is not to fear the worst that Egypt can throw at him. He has the assurance that he will worship God again at this mountain. So that even in Egypt, when the situation looks dire, he has this word of assurance, I know I'm safe. I'm going to worship God again at that mountain. It was something he could hold on to. And my brothers and sisters, we are not to fear the worst that this world can do to us. There is a place called heaven, the mountain of God, and whatever may happen to you between now and then, you will worship God at that mountain. Whatever may happen to your bodies, your soul will worship God at that mountain. And you're going to worship God in His special presence there. The worst thing that can happen to you in this life, dear Christian, is you be killed and ushered into the presence of God. That's the worst. A quick entry into the glory of Christ. You have God's Word on this matter. You will worship Him in His presence, in heaven, and nothing between now and then should worry you. God is watching over you. He will bring you safely there. And so this passage teaches us not to despair. As you fight the good fight of faith, do not despair. Your God will keep you saved. Your God will keep you believing. He will keep you on the road to heaven. He will equip you for every calling He gives you. Trust Him. And live in the joy of His promises. Amen?
Amen. Let's pray.